You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. Tommy's here by phone. Aaron's with me in studio. We are more than six feet apart as we continue to practice very good social distancing. Um, We're here. You know why? We are essential. Uh, I can't believe it, Tommy. Nobody's ever referred to you, me, or Aaron as essential. Um, But we're media members. We're broadcasters. And, of course, there's no sort of uh, differentiation between a news broadcaster and a sports broadcaster in these times. So I, you know, I got a letter that basically says if you need to show anybody that you're essential, here's the letter that describes your essentialness. Uh, but w- you know what? In all seriousness, uh, well, in, in being serious, we are considered as media people to be essential, even though really what we're doing isn't essential to anything. Um, but I am really actually glad to be working. I, I, I don't, I think I'd be going nuts if I didn't have, you know, the three hour radio show and then this podcast and the conversations we have. I mean, just how, how many times can you sit down to watch Tiger King. You watched it, didn't you? You, 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 you uh, It was so exciting to hear that you've been watching it because we're going to get to that in a moment. But um, I'm glad to be working. I don't know about you. You know, I've got. I, I always say I remember that Don King when he went to jail for beating a guy to death, uh, and he spent five years in prison before he got the governor to to give him a pardon and get him out. He always said. Don't do time. Let time work for you. And uh, I have a. I've always said I would adopt that philosophy if I ever had to do serious time. And this is time, basically. I'm doing time here uh, in an apartment up in Frederick. So I structure my day casually, but structured. And I've got this. I've, I've got a hand on this thing, so I'm okay. I mean, you know, I. I I, I sleep late, I wake up, I do a little writing, you know, I watch a little Law & Order, you know, I have some lunch, I do some more writing, I do some exercising, you know, then I do some reading, then I, I, I smoke a cigar, have some dinner, then watch some TV, and hey, all of a sudden <laughs> it's bedtime. You so, know. So, and, 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 and last, yesterday... It got all thrown out of whack because, uh, you know, I sensed that my wife really wanted to go for a walk. And I said, okay, we'll go for a short walk. Uh, uh, so uh, what turned out to be, sh- what's supposed to be a short walk, turned out oh, to almost be three miles. And, and uh, I wasn't really ready for that. And it kind of screwed up my whole day. Got my whole day out of whack. So I'm back to normal now today. Well, were you concerned about the walk? Oh, it was out in in, in a park with uh, nobody around. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. As soon as we as we were ending the walk, a ranger came up to us and said, "We're closing the park for good today. Well, for 30 days today at eight o'clock tonight." Yeah. So, but we didn't really encounter anyone. We encountered was like you know ten, twelve, twenty feet apart. Uh, and, uh, it wasn't my day, you know, I mean, I have my days mapped out and um, I'm happy with them. That's good. I'd be happier if I was working more, but I'm not. 
you know, I, I mean, I got this thing under control. I think you may be one of those people. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that I'm not. Um, I have to think about it actually to answer the following: Are you enjoying social distancing more than you thought? Not particularly. You know, uh, I, I, I was, I grew up one of two kids in a family. My sister was eight years older than me, so we weren't really close. I mean, she was like another mother. And, uh, and so I've always kind of amused myself, so to speak. You know, I've always been able to say, hey, you know, if there's nobody around to talk to, nobody around to hang out with, I'm fine you know, uh, taking care of myself. Now, that doesn't mean I, I don't like people. I love hanging out with people. One of the things I miss is going to sporting events and seeing people going to Shelly's back room, having a cigar and a beer and hanging out with, with, with them, those my friends there. I like that. I get energy off of people, but I'm perfectly fine on my own. Uh, for So, I mean, so I social distancing, it's not something... That it's I'm good at, but it's not something I would crave. I think that there are a lot of people that actually would say, you know what, this is okay with me. You know, um, I I'm not uh, I'm not okay. No, I, I I it's not that I am so social that this has really thrown me off because that's not the case. I'm probably more antisocial than social, but I'm not antisocial either. Um, and I, I miss being able to do things the way we did them. I mean, you know, I've also, and I've told you, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of people in the house, you know, I mean, probably too many to be honest with you, but, um, it's, it's, it's what we're doing right now. And, you know, my wife and, and I feel much better with the three boys home, um, than, than not being home. And, and there's, you know, there's nothing to do in college park or state college. Nothing's open in those places, you know, and my oldest, you know, is, is working from home anyway. Um, but you know, it's, it's confined. Like I found myself yesterday basically saying after the podcast was over, I'm, I'm hanging out here in the, in the studio because I can get more done here. (laughs) And by the way, it's quiet. Um, than at home, but there was this video that was circulating last week, and I may have talked about it, and I want Aaron to uh, to play it here. Because of coronavirus, you are going to be quarantined, but you have a choice. Do you, A, quarantine with your wife and child, or B, B. B. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you got to see this guy, too, because it's so deadpan. Like, he didn't even have to think about it, and there's boom, B. Um, I think a lot of people are in that position, too. I mean, God bless us in, in our families and being able to be with the families. But, you know, after a while, it's like uh, it's it's time for this thing to end, but it's not going to end anytime soon. You know, it's not. No. No, I mean you got a bigger, much bigger challenge than I do. Well, I with, don't. With I don't even consider. I, I honestly, Tommy, I honestly don't consider it a challenge. I had a conversation with Cooley the other night, and he's telling me he's got two young kids. You know, five and two. The the, the those people with young kids right now have the biggest challenge. I mean, oh, absolutely. Uh, my kids absolutely. are adults, I basically. I mean, th- th- that's easy. They're off doing their own thing. They're working or they're watching TV or they're on their phone. I, I don't have to entertain anybody. 
um, you know, have to feed everybody, um, but I don't have to entertain anybody. If you're home with kids that are young and would have been in school, and that is, that's a challenge, I feel, for those people. You know, my wife and I had an argument about kids we don't even have anymore the other day. Uh, not an argument, just a debate. Uh, I said that if we had little kids, our cable bill would be $500 a month. <laughs> right now, yeah. Right now. Oh, no I mean, doubt. Because we'd be writing movies all the time. She said, no, I wouldn't allow that. I said, oh, that's big talk. You know, now, uh, you know, come day five when you're having to play with them every day. Uh, you, you'd be writing every Disney movie that, that you could find. So, I mean, that's my contention. My cable bill would be through the roof. Oh, I think I think everybody's uh, experiencing that. Before we get to Tiger King, which I finished up late last night, um, I was just, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, what everybody's going through right now. And because really this is unprecedented for our lifetimes. I mean, you lived through Kennedy being shot and 9-11. Those are the two, right, the two biggest events, uh, news events, you know, impactful events of your life. For me, it's 9-11. You know, this is nothing like 9-11. Within a week, they were playing sports again. People were back at work. Sure, people were concerned and they were worried and it impacted definitely airline travel for a while and the way we traveled, it certainly had a permanent impact. But this is completely different. This is the whole world and every single person's you know, normal life has been turned upside down. And I was thinking about what permanent changes will come out of this. You know, we already have this sense, right, that handshakes and greetings among people and, you know, it, that, that that will change moving forward. I, I don't know if we get back to handshakes and hugs and everything once we get a vaccine and once we get treatment for this thing and we just say, you know what, it's going to be another hundred years before something like this happens. We're going to be fine. You know, maybe it does. But don't you think there will be permanent things that come out of this, that the lifestyle changes? Or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. I tell you what, I think no matter what, uh, you'll see a lot more masks all the time. People wearing masks for years to come, like they do in Asia, uh, you know, as, as a way of life than, than you do now. Not, not, not the majority, but you'll see more of that. You'll see more people wearing masks even when this thing is over on an everyday basis when they go out. Yeah. You're probably right because it does happen in Asia a lot more. And yes. by the way, I haven't put a mask on once. I don't own a mask. There aren't any really to to, to be had right now. And you know, base unless I'm wrong about this, Aaron, the suggestion still is if you don't have symptoms, you shouldn't be wearing a mask. Correct? I don't know. Well, I, the C the CDC is is about to come out with guidelines that says everybody should wear a mask when they go out. Okay, so where are we going to get masks? Where are we going to get these N95 masks? Well, no, no, not those. I mean, you have, uh, you got to have a seamstress in your family who can make them. Mm. Yeah, that that would be a problem in our family. But yeah, I mean, so that. But but, I mean, basically, the mask, which I I have one, not, not, I mean, you know, just a a typical one, not, not the high tech one. You've got the fake gun that uh, goes with it, right? That's part of what you guys like. Yes. 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 (laughs) And I, I wore it out yesterday because, 
I mean, you, you can't deny it. Does not it, it doesn't give you some sense of protection, particularly when it comes to droplets that are that are out there in, in the air. So uh, the CDC is about to issue, according to a post story, a new a guideline that says they should be worn all the time when you go out. I've heard um, and read now that a lot of you know ER doctors, a lot of doctors in general, just say if you just stop touching your face, you're way ahead of the ball game. That we touch our face so many times during the course of the day, and you know even if people are practicing, you know the hand washing, and that it's it's about you know touching your face is a big deal. So I am definitely concentrating on not touching my face. Um, but back to just the permanent changes, like just things like that may have been already well on their way to being part of sort of things that were normal. I mean, more and more people were working from home and teleworking and all of that, 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 that was a change that that's been in, you know, it may get accelerated, but we've been seeing that more and more over the last 10, 15 years anyway. Um, well, I'm, I want to point out that the Trump administration was trying to cut it back. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that ship has sailed. The uh, you know, dis- obviously, you know, learning, you know, large gatherings in campuses and high schools. I mean, we may get, end up with more distance learning, which you know, we're, we're going to end up potentially with more telemedicine. You know, a, a lot of that. Um, hell, I mean, some people believe we're going to end up with a lot more religion. Even if there aren't large gatherings, that this is going to get people back to you know faith. Um, but you know, I don't know. Part of me thinks six months from now, the vaccine, the treatments are in place and we're right back to where we were. I think large gatherings though for sporting events initially are going to be impacted. Are going to be what? I think, let's just say six months from now, we're in the middle of an NFL season, right? You know, it's September, October and there are treatments that are working and there's a vaccine that's about to come out and people are less concerned about this coronavirus and 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 getting seriously ill. I still think that live sporting events are going to be massively impacted early on. I mean, why would you take the risk of going to a, you know, a 90,000 seat, you know, stadium when the game's on TV? Well, I mean, okay, let's say they start up uh, NFL football again. Uh, and, and this is a downturn, you know, we're on the downside of this, but, but it's still a very contagious disease. What happens if one player, uh, tests positive and, and contracts it? Do you shut down the whole league again? Again, if you've got the treatments in place, then it's just, isn't it very much considered, even though it's super contagious, so are, you know... I mean, would you? I don't know. I don't think so. Not if you had treatments to to tend to the sick. You know, if you've got medication that ensures that you can't get seriously ill, then it's a whole different ball game, isn't it? But I don't think there's any. There, there is no medication. I'm saying that if there is, no treatment. I'm just saying that if we get to that point, and there is, if there isn't, then we're in the same position we're in now. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's going to be a problem holding sporting events for the next until you get a vaccine, which is at the best early next year. So you you canceled the tournament before anybody else did. Are you canceling the NFL season? Uh, no, I'm not willing. Look, I mean, again, 
I had a sense that smart people knew that this was going to be worse than than most people, but now everybody is a guest. So I have, I'm not going to make that leap at that point. If you ask me for an educated guess, I think there's a, I think I don't think we'll see any live sporting events this year. Um, the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, I I hope you're wrong. Obviously, so I do hope I. You're wrong, but I'm not. I, I mean, you know, yeah. I I wouldn't I wouldn't bet that you're wrong. Um, I I think it's too. You know, it's like what we've said all along. We just we don't know. Um, no. the problem, of course, is just the potential head fake with you know a seasonal um, lessening of the spread and the big concern that come fall and winter, it's coming back again. And hopefully at that point we do have treatments that work and we, you know, we're getting closer to making the vaccine widely available. The the treatments are crucial because, you know, if you've got drugs that can actually take a seriously ill person who's in at major risk um, and turning their situation around with, 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 you know, meds, that's huge. We don't have that right now. I mean, I know that people have talked up, including the president, you know, the hydrochloroquine, um, you know, combined with the antibiotic. But and I know that, you know, Dr. Fauci talks all the time about another 60 to 70 drugs that are being, you know, trialed right now. Um, you know, hopefully they can come up <clears throat> with. Yeah, you've got coronavirus. We got to put you on the Z pack and the hydrochloroquine for uh, five days, but you, you'll feel great at the end of five days. Hopefully, it's something like that. I sure hope so. Me too. I mean, because that's that's what they can do for the flu, for the most part. Yeah, um, I know people die from the flu. I tell you what, I bet you get a flu shot after this. <clears throat> I think next year I'll get a flu shot, definitely. Yeah, I think so. I think you and a lot of other people. Well, I will. I I will definitely get the vaccine for the coronavirus when it comes out. (laughs) I mean, what was the last Tommy? You would know this. Was it polio? What was the last vaccine that the whole world was waiting, you know, breathlessly for it to be developed and and uh, widely available to people? Was it polio? It was polio. The scare for polio happened before I was born. Right. right, right before I was born. Uh, but from what I gather, I mean, you know, people—it was something that that people were frightened with. You know, when they went to sleep at night, that their kids would wake up and not be able to move their legs, which was, you know, one of the big uh, uh, symptoms of, uh, of of polio. And uh, it had thrown the country into a crisis. So everyone waited for what turned out to be the Jonas Salk. And actually, there were two vaccines. One was a vaccine, and one was oral. Uh, uh, and Jonas Salk had one, and I forget the name of the other guy well, didn't, who had the other which one. Which one did Jonas Salk invent? I don't remember which one was which. But I remember getting the vaccine at school and then also getting what amounted to a sugar cube. I remember the sugar cube when I was at in school. elementary school, when I was super young. Yeah. I remember the sugar cube. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you got to go back to polio to the kind of fright I think that has spread through this country because of this. You think the person that comes up with the vaccine will become as famous as Jonas Salk? Well, I think the person that comes up with the vaccine will be Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, what I think. Yeah. I think it'll be I, I'll Trump tell you what, he will certainly uh, take credit for it. Um, yes. 
Anyway, so um, you watched Tiger King? Yes, I did. When did you Quite When did you finish it? I finished it uh, Sunday night. Sunday okay, night. we watched it. Sat- we started watching it Saturday. We finished it Sunday night. All right, I finished it last night. I watched the first five episodes over the weekend. I, I watched episodes six and seven last night. Aaron and I talked about the first five. Uh, the, you know, he didn't spoil it for me, um, but we'll, we'll talk about it start to finish. I'll let you have at it first, but let me just give you my headline from the final two episodes. I found the final two episodes to be um, really uneventful for the most part and disappointing. I thought it would they were very slow compared to the first five episodes. I could not wait to watch Tommy after watching the first five. I couldn't wait to get to the last two last night, which I finally got to. And I was largely sort of disappointed. I thought they were very slow. But with that said, Overall, Tiger King for me gets at least, you know, at least an A minus. No worse than that. It was crazy. But go ahead. It was. It was the kind of thing where I, I said to myself, "My God, I wish this is the story I w- would have written." Uh, that's measure for me. When I look at something else that's done and said, "Wow, this this story was just out there waiting to be done." Yeah. You know, if you were paying attention, and what a great story it, it turned out to be. And I like the endings. The, the last two episodes, particularly because that's when that's when at least uh, a semi reality, a semi truth came into play. Like what actually happens to these people, uh, you know, when when this thing comes to a conclusion. So I like the inform. I like knowing, you know, what what the end result was going to be for Joe Exotic and Carol and. Uh, you know, Rick and Keel, the guy who had the hair of women. Doc, yeah, Doc. And, and yeah. yeah. And uh and so I like I like that in, in the sense that uh you got an I it was it was it was the conclusion of the story. Now the story is still going on. But, yeah, well that uh, that's part of it. Is that this like we don't know I mean do, or do we know Aaron? Has Jeff Lowe been indicted on anything at this point? Not that I know of. Okay. What, no, what, what, no how, he, was, he was not. We do know that Carol's second husband, poor Don, who is still missing as far as I know, um, and there was no sort of, and maybe they'll never have uh, a definitive con- a conclusion to that, even though everybody's convinced after watching that that she very likely was involved and maybe fed him to, to one of the tigers. Um, I, I Jeff was Jeff was a bad dude, man. He he was he definitely participated in the plot to kill Carol and set Joe up. I mean, it, Joe was. I, I asked Aaron yesterday who your number one seed wacko on the show was, um, and I guess we both sort of ended up, you know, landing on Joe uh, Exotic. Now, I, I don't but, think it's Joe necessarily. Oh, you you didn't, right? You thought it was. Um, I thought it might be Jeff or even Carol. I think Carol's a little more of a wacko than uh, Joe. Yeah, not as not as outlandishly wacko. Um, I mean, Rick Kirkham, the 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 the. Uh, the, the reality show director guy, I loved his character. I mean, we say characters. This was not this was not fiction. This was a real no. story. Like he was really an interesting dude. Obviously, Joe was interesting. Doc Antle. We really got very little of Doc Antle in the final you know few episodes. We we saw in the fine print at the end of the show that his his zoo was raided, but was it shut down? Was he shut down? 
I don't believe so. No, it wasn't. It wasn't shut down. And he has come out and said the reason it was raided was for a couple of things unrelated to anything that came up in the show. Uh, you know, everyone's looking for cover now at this point. There was a story I read uh, quoting everybody, like Carol. Uh, you know, she was uh, adamant about the how she was misportrayed. She was portrayed poorly in, in the show, and her. Ev- that she didn't kill her husband is our meat grinder on on the on the property is a lot smaller than the meat grinder they showed on TV. <laughs> that was her evidence that she didn't kill her her husband. Uh, yeah, well, and, we got, uh, we got that during the show. Yeah. So uh, so I mean, look, uh, I think I think Joe was the, was the craziest character. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's even close. <laughs> That's it. Anyone, anyone. No, he ran for president. And governor. And he ran for president <clears throat> and governor and, and, and put out condoms as campaign yeah. uh, promotion. Yeah, J- Jeff, so. was not, Jeff was not happy about the expense <laughs> of the condoms. Um, how about, by no. the way, the, the whole thing is just a group of incredibly entertaining, wildly, you know, WT wackos, all of who, whom do unseemly stuff. The only normal person, and I said this to Aaron yesterday, was the campaign manager who worked at Walmart and sold ammunition in the gun department. Yeah. But in that last episode, when Jeff's wife is about to pop out a child, and he, first of all, he says, once, once, once that child's born, she's going to start working out. She's going to have to get into the gym. And meantime, the, he says yes to the nanny, but he gets to pick the nanny out. And, yes. and he picks out like this hottest, you know, 25-year-old. I mean, what a scumbag. His wife's pregnant, and he's picking out the hottest nanny and telling her once she has the baby, she's going to have to work out. This guy is so super low rent. And by the way, Joe's got him figured out. He's a total con artist. And by the way, not a very good one, but consider the crowd that he was conning you know it wasn't too tough you know there's a lot of guys like Jeff out there I've I've written about guys like Jeff out there I wrote about a guy uh, a big uh, uh, expose I did on a mob related guy named Tony limo back in the uh, 90s who was basically a con artist I mean who basically conned everybody everywhere he went uh, and, 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 and live like Jeff, like with a Las Vegas, you know, mansion that was, you know, just something he rented. I mean, it created the illusion of a guy with influence and money. It's amazing how, how many people are out there are able to do that and how many people fall for it. Because, let's face it, like W.C. Field said, you can't cheat an honest man. <laughs> right. So this, this guy, Tony Limo. Uh, he basically almost convinced the the chairman of Braniff to sell him the airline. And he had nothing. <laughs> he met with this guy. He convinced Dino De Laurentiis' son to give him money for a movie that never existed. Uh, he took, he robbed a guy out in Western Maryland who owned a small airline called Cumberland Airlines to basically, uh, you know, Give him the airlines that he was going to buy it, and then he didn't have any money. He robbed the guy of his airlines. I mean, this guy everywhere he went, this is what he. Even when he was a prisoner, he's in a Supreme Court case, a historic 
Supreme Court case because he convinced an inmate in prison to confess to a crime, and it became basically a landmark case in the Supreme Court. This guy, everything he did was a con. It was just his name, and he was so good at it, you know, like, and, and, and he lived like this guy Rick did. He didn't have any money, Jeff. but he lived yeah. like he did. Yeah, this guy <clears throat> Jeff. So he, he convinced people, and this guy Tony Limo one time, he was in prison in uh, Baltimore, and I had written about him a lot, and he called me from prison and threatened me. Seriously? Yes. Oh, my yes. God. To, wait, me. tell me about that. So, well, he called me from prison. And, what was, so what, which, which con was he in prison for? Uh, you know, uh, geez, I think this was the Cumberland Airlines con. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. There were so many of them. Uh, and uh, he basically calls me. I'm at the Baltimore Sun. I'm in the newsroom. Uh, collect call from uh, Baltimore City Jail. Uh, so I take the call, and uh, he tells me how difficult I'm making his life. Because, get this, he should be, he was supposed to be in protective custody because, oh, I forgot to mention, out of all this, he was a federal informant. So he was in the witness protection program while he was conning everybody. So he was protected by the government with a lot of these cons until they couldn't protect him anymore. So uh, he's in jail and they want to put him in protective custody because he was a federal witness right. for a lot of things. But he doesn't want to do that because he wants to be in Gen Pop so he can get something on somebody so he can negotiate his way out. You know, he wants to pick up some intelligence and convince some poor slob in there to basically give him some crime that he did so he can rat him out. You know, so he, he calls me, he says, Look, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in general population. You're writing these stories. You're making my life difficult. If I get out of here, I'm going to make your life more than difficult, he says to me. And, you know, I said to myself, you're in prison, buddy. You, know? <laughs> you ain't going anywhere. Oh, come on. Uh, you, you, had, you had to be, when you got that call, a little bit concerned. He's in but prison, but it doesn't mean that he can't have. It doesn't mean that he can't have somebody outside of prison come take care of you. I knew everything about the guy at that point. I knew he was more talk than anything. I knew uh, the mob guys up in New York thought he was a joke. Uh, so I, I knew I knew he was more talk. That was his thing. It was talk. He never did anything to anybody in terms of fiscal thing that that we know of. He was never accused of that. Or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I wasn't that worried about it. And I knew what his motivation was. He was just worried with the stories in the paper that somebody inside, would, people inside would be wary of talking to him. So, and nothing ever happened after that. It's funny he that he was a federal, he was the, he was a, a, a federal, um, you said a federal witness that probably required protection, yet he wanted to be in the general population where he could get whacked. No, not where he, yeah, where he could get whacked, but he could also get information. Yeah, he I understand what you're saying. Way out of jail. Right. Oh, yeah, because, you know, he was fearless. In that sense, he thought he could talk his way out of anything. Here's the story. probably I, getting killed. I just found your story on the inter- Internet from June 24th, 1991, Tom Lavero, the Baltimore Sun. This is awesome. With- the, What's the headline? Um, the the headline is oh god I've got a, an ad blocking the headline sorry. Um, 
something. I've got I've got a Heinz ketchup ad blocking, and there's no X to close the ad out. It's driving me crazy. Well, the Baltimore Sun's a pay site, so you might not be able to get on. Hold on. Uh, I wrote one here. Big, I can read. The, uh, let me read the story. The, the first paragraph. The day in court for Anthony Savarola was his name. That's his real name, right? Sarav- yeah, he's dead now, by the way. The former yeah. organized crime enforcer and FBI informant accused of swindling a Western Maryland commuter airline has come and gone with no trial, no reason for postponement, and no new date. The prosecutor isn't saying why the case scheduled for June 10th was postponed. I don't know, said Ethan Bauman, assistant U.S. attorney. His boss isn't saying why it was postponed. Um, but you've got in here, as I scroll down, this is the guy, right? Yes. That's the guy. Okay. Now, that's one of the stories that followed. I wrote this big expose about 100 inches long uh, a couple of months before, you know, detailing everything he had done. Uh, that's the story that... He uh, worked for I, Michael I, I, Fran- I I, I, Fran- Franzisi, a young, powerful member of the Colombo family. Yeah, who's an interesting story in himself, because Mike Franzisi was the son of a real nasty mob boss named Sonny Franzese who went to jail, but Michael Franzese is one of the few mob bosses that actually left the mob and I... basically has gone on to be a normal life, and it's a real religious guy now, and he's been interviewed. I'm sure I think I, interviewed. I know exactly who he is. I just pulled up yes. his picture. I've seen him many yes. times. You know, probably in a lot of sports uh, shows about basketball Fixing, yes, I want to say, Tommy, yes. that he may have been part of that thing with Henry Hill in the uh, in yes. the in the Boston College thing. Am I right about that or not? Yes. Yeah, I, I think he was. Uh, but uh, he used to be a mob boss, uh, and he's one of the few guys that walked literally just walked away from it and had a, a semi-normal life and lived to tell about it. Yeah, I've definitely seen this guy. Um, but your story, your story breaks down. Hold on here. Let me just because um, I love this stuff. Um, the uh, Mr. Saravola, all right, Tony Limo, aka Tony Limo, right? That was his nickname. You don't write that in the that story. That was his nickname. Okay. Um, yeah. The federal indictment in Baltimore involving Cumberland Airlines charges that Mr. Saravola, Tony Limo, 36 years old, under his alias Anthony Steele, so he had another alias as well, purchased Cumberland Airlines in February 1990 from the owner Alfred Nicholson using fraudulent financial documents. He wired Mr. Nicholson financial documents showing that the shareholders' equity in coastal Maine was worth more than $43 million and the company's total assets were $56 million. Uh, Mr. Saravola promised to pay $50,000 to shareholders in, Col- in Cumberland Airlines, along with 250,000 shares of Coastal Maine stock. Mr. Nicholson said he was told that the stock was worth about $4 a share at the time, but ultimately, and I'll just fast forward to it, because basically Coastal Maine didn't even exist <laughs> and was worth nothing. So he, ben- he he basically bought an airline with stock and a promise to pay shareholders in stock and cash from a company that really didn't in- exist. The the indictment says that Coastal Main stock was totally worthless. Um and then he depleted most of Cumberland Airlines assets by traveling around the country at the company's expense. <laughs> <laughs> 
The pl- <laughs> the planes were later repossessed by Mercantile Bank. That's pretty hysterical. I, I you have yeah. Some... I have to, to send you the whole story sometime. The, the big story. How on this ad can't I find the little X here to to give you the headline? It's not letting me do it on the Baltimore, Baltimore side. side anymore. I don't know. Just Aaron, stay away from me. We're not getting close to you. Aaron wants to come over and help, and I don't want him anywhere near me. God knows where he's been. Um, all right. Well, that was a good story. That was a good story. Yeah. I don't know how we got to it from Tiger King, but overall, <laughs> Tiger King was certainly worth you know this coronavirus shutdown, you know, quarantine hunkering down situation. You know, basically, it's you know seven episodes. 40 minutes an episode, so, you know, we're talking about whatever, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of a five- to six-hour commitment. Your time ain't worth much these days, so it's worth your time. <laughs> exactly. Okay? And uh, and you know what? I'm, I'm, look, I'm usually not uh, the kind of guy that likes to watch the show that everyone is watching. I like to be the guy in front of that parade, not one of the last guys on that parade. Yeah. And... And uh, so normally I wouldn't watch a show like Tiger King because I was late to it, and everybody's saying you should watch it, and that's usually a turnoff for me. Give me an example of that. Well, I still have never seen Titanic. (laughs) Well, that's just ridiculous. I have never seen Titanic because by the time I was interested, everybody had seen it, and I said, I'm not going to see this. Everybody's seen it. You know, you can't get a real sense of how good it is because everybody says it's it's, it's good and nothing's that good. So uh, so I've I've never seen Titanic. That gives you an idea of of how how I ne- uh so uh but I I mean Tiger You've missed a lot because you you've missed a lot then over the course of your lifetime because let me clue you in on something. You usually aren't first to the party on a lot of things. <laughs> I was first to the party on the Sopranos. And the wire. Actually, you know, the one, well, I have several sort of programming um, uh, major whiffs or misses at this point. The wire being the biggest. And you've been, you know, convincing me to watch or trying to convince me to watch the wire for years. And it's not that I haven't wanted to watch it. And I know that you've got a cameo in the wire. And I tell every single one of my friends over many years (laughs) that will say, you haven't watched the wire. And I'll be like, no. And I said, and I'll always say, do you know who's in the wire? No, who? I'm like, Tommy's in it. Who? Tommy Lavero. <laughs> Lavero's in it. He's, he makes a cameo. And so they go back and, and look for it. But um, yeah, I have not watched The Wire. You did. You were definitely the one. You and Scott probably definitely got me on Breaking Bad, and I was late to it, but I absolutely um, you know, needed to watch it. To, to me, that's... To me, Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad are one, two in some particular order, and I love The Sopranos. And I, and by the way, I've got one of my sons watching The Sopranos right now. After me, you know, telling him he's got to watch it, he, he's never watched it before, and he loves it. Um, but those would be the shows for me. But I, my sense is, if I ever sat down and watched The Wire, that The Wire would be right there too. Yeah, I think. Well, there, you know, you just mentioned another example: Game of Thrones. I've, I, I don't I watch Game of Thrones. I know you're an idiot. I've for, never watched. You're, it you're a total because, idiot. Well, I, I don't have a costume, and now I can't no. go out yeah, you, you to and, wear you while and Van Pelt, You and Scott, the two yeah. of you. And my friend Ted, who texted me after listening to me say this yesterday, because it is, it's very, like what I, 
like I, I said to those that looked at Tiger King and said, I don't want to watch that show. It's like, no, no, no. You know, just forget the animals and the, the you know, the, the crazy wacko, you know, hillbillies and rednecks in this show. I trust me on this. You're going to love it. And that's the thing about Game of Thrones. Like, it's not fantasy. It's a character show. And you and Scott right. forever said, I'm not watching a show with dragons and white walkers where I got to play dress up. Well, that's not the show. And if you ever just took our, it took everybody's advice and watched it, you would come back as Scott would and say, "Man, you know what? I really, I was wrong. You, you guys were 100 percent right." You would say that. Are you, are, are you and your kids playing Dungeons and Dragons yet? No, we're not, Tommy. And it's okay. again, that's not the, that's not the comparable. It's not. Okay. Um, but okay, you know, by the way, yeah. uh, you're an Ozark guy, right? So I, I, you know, Clay... Now, now don't... I, I've only watched the first three episodes. Of, the, of season one? Of, of season three. Okay, well, I haven't gotten to season three. I watched season one literally days after it came out. And I told everybody to watch Ozark that it was the best new show. And then we had to wait nearly a year and a half for season two and i've watched like half of season two so i'm gonna go back and watch it i loved ozark season one and i'll i'll catch up with that i know it's great yeah it is it's absolutely absolutely fabulous and i am in the middle of watching better call saul which comes out i want to watch the rest of that too yeah it's pretty good god man look at all the shows i mean on ozark though based on your um, you know, your philosophy, everybody keeps saying how great Ozark season three is. Maybe I'm just not going to watch it then. Even though well, I, w- uh, I was on Ozark season one before a lot of my friends and convinced them I to watch it. I, I understand it's a self-defeating uh, philosophy. <laughs> Stupid. I, I get that. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you're, you're depriving yourself based on what? Yes. It's stupid. So do me a favor. Um, get Liz in one of the next, you know, 30 days and, and carve out two and a half hours or three hours or, or however long it is. It's a long movie. And watch Titanic. You'll like it. You'll really like it. Um, all right. What I'd else? rather tore my pillow uh, back. <laughs> that guy. Uh, but, well, I'm not going to say anything because who knows? Maybe my pillow will be a future advertiser on the show. But I, <laughs> but I actually tried my pillow at one point, and um. Anyway, who knows? It was they, great, it, wasn't it? It was. It didn't solve the problem that I was looking for it to solve. I'll just say it that way. Um, but okay. maybe I didn't try enough pillows. Maybe I tried the wrong one. Um, Maybe you tried his pillow instead of my no, pillow. No, no, no. I did try a, a MyPillow.com pillow. That's what okay. I'm saying. I actually was convinced by somebody because I was having like migraines, and they're like, it could be the pillow. And so I was convinced to, you know, and this was the pillow that was suggested from MyPillow.com, and I got it, and it really didn't solve the issue at all. But I could have just, you know, ordered the wrong pillow. Um, but, man, you know, um, he... I don't. I don't know that he surprised a lot of people with his discussion yesterday with the president. A lot of people said that they no. certainly thought that that sort of what he what he was like. That was um, yeah. I, I, just, thought, I just I, thought I, I just belched. By the way, you missed that. Tommy used to Tommy used to burp remember, all you remember the, the time on the show. No, but there was one in particular. <laughs> one in particular that we caught, and you would not admit it. There. You wouldn't admit it. No. No, <laughs> you were so weak. It's like it's you, you burped. Who cares? You know, I still have that sound bite on my. Phone. Well, st- yeah, Mark turned it into a drop. Remember? Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. Yes, I did. And uh, you just because you you hear everything. <laughs> and you call me on everything. Well, any you... little any any little any little breath, any little murmur, <laughs> you hear everything, and you call me on it right on the air. And you call you say, instead of just letting it go, you said, "Did you just belt?" I said, yeah, I, said, I think I think we have it. I said, did you just, was that a burp? Did you just burp on the air? And you, you turned, like you turned beat red and you started laughing and you like turned off your mic and pulled away. And I'm like, he did. And Stern went back and played it. The, I mean, look, the truth is, you know, and I say this with, with all love intended, there were a lot of noises coming at you over, <laughs> over a two hour period every day. I mean, we could come up with many more sound drops. Um, there were many, many days where I just sort of smiled and just kept going. Where I could have called, if I had called out every odd noise coming out uh, uh, from your side uh, of the studio, um, we, we would have never gotten in any real content. All right. Um, so since we last had a show, I think... Right. Did we do, because Tommy was on Friday, did we do all the Trent Williams stuff from JFK to JFK interview on Friday? I think we did, right? We did. Yeah, we did. Okay, so. We did. And I've come around to your way of thinking a little bit more in the sense that Trent Williams' agent is an idiot. Oh, yeah. He's. Yeah. This I has been bad. Re- this has been bad representation. Yeah, he, he's an idiot. I mean, really bad representation. Um, before we get to, to some Redskins-related stuff, I, I, I was going to mention this. You know, when s- sport, like there are two things that uh, I was thinking about in terms of we never know, like as sports fans. You would say we never know about anything. Um, I disagree with that. I think sometimes fans have, you know, decent perspective on things. And, and like, you know, my clock management stuff, even, you know, players have said to me, Cooley in particular – Dude, these coaches don't know how to do it. A lot of the people that just play video games know more than they do. But anyway, that to the side. I was reading something that somebody sent to me on Twitter. It came from a Minnesota Vikings beat reporter for Fansided, which is sort of like a bleacher report thing, Aaron, right? And he's the Vikings apparently have some interest in Trent Williams. Now, they, they have to clear more cap space to make it happen, but they're apparently interested in Trent Williams. And, and by the way, as an aside, Trent Williams, more than anybody on those teams with Kirk Cousins, was Kirk Cousins' biggest fan. He was the one that consistently went public with support for Kirk Cousins when, you know, especially in 2017 when there was the discussion of whether or not he would be back. And Trent Williams said, we have to have him back. He's our guy. He's our leader. He's our franchise quarterback. And so anyway, there's been some discussion about Minnesota potentially being uh, interested in Trent Williams. So this guy's writing about all of the trade possibilities. And trade scenario number one is a first-rounder and a fifth-rounder. Minnesota's first-round pick, which is their first their first of two first-round picks, number 22 overall, and their fifth-round pick for Trent Williams. And then trade scenario number two is Anthony Harris, their very good franchise-tagged star safety, straight up for Trent Williams. And then the third possibility is Riley Reif, their starting left tackle, and a second-round pick. And then the fourth one is a second, a fourth, and a future fourth. And I started to think, I'm like, you know, this is a guy that covers the team, you know, and he's in a different market. 
and they're thinking about Trent Williams and what kind of offer, what kind of compensation would be required for Trent Williams. And he's giving you a first and a fifth, a star player, you know, a two, two a second and two fourths. Um, and I'm like, this guy, has he been paying attention? Like nobody's even offered Trent Williams a second yet. Um, and I, I personally would wait for the, for the second rounder. I wouldn't move him for anything less. And it just made me think about one of the things that we as sports fans always get wrong, and that is trade compensation. How many conversations we have as sports fans where we're like, well, you could, you know, if you traded him, you'd easily get a first and a second, or you'd get, we have no idea because past, you know, precedent setting trades um, never really are comparables for whatever reason. Like every single situation has a unique context and a unique group of people that are doing the evaluating. We never get this right as sports fans when it comes to trade value. I think Trent Williams should have brought back a first last year, and I said no worse than a combination of a second and a third, and I think they would have gotten that. But right now the Redskins say they want a second, and this guy in another market with a team that's interested is, you know, isn't even hearing that. He's saying automatically his opinion is, well, maybe we got to give up a first and a fifth. I mean, any one of the deals he presented the Redskins would take and run with right now. And I, I just think it's one of those things that we never really get right as sports fans. There are a couple of things I don't think we get right consistently. That's one of them. And the other one has to do with Trent Williams' position in particular. We never, as normal, regular, hardcore football fans, get and evaluate offensive linemen correctly. We have no idea what we're looking at. This is why it's so difficult for offensive linemen to get into the Hall of Fame. Because there's no easy way for the average Joe, even if they're a sports writer, to quantify uh, the success, uh, the accomplishments of an offensive tackle or an offensive guard. Uh, you know, the best you can do is, I mean, and this is only part of their game, how was the running game on their team when they when they were there? But that's only part of their game. It doesn't even take into account pass protection. This is why it's difficult for a guy like Jacoby, you know, to, who winds up caught in the switches over the years, whereas other guys, the other offensive players with gaudy statistics or even defensive players with sacks and tackles, you know, can pass them by. This this is it's not just a problem for. Man, it's a problem for writers evaluating uh, offensive linemen too. Yeah, I, it's um, uh, there are a lot of offensive linemen. I just pulled it up. There are a lot of offensive linemen in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, but but your 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 larger point about evaluating them, you know, writers don't know, fans don't know. It's why yes. it's why. Um, I mean, obviously, the easiest players to to evaluate are the players that end up with the ball in their hands, you know. And those right. that don't are much harder to evaluate. It's it's often why I believe that a lot of when it comes to football, these advanced you know statistics and advanced you know evaluations from you know Pro Football Focus and Football Outsiders are really you know incredibly limited because they don't know 
in football what a specific player's responsibility is on a specific play. You know, there are lots of times where I remember, you know, doing the show with Cooley. Cooley knew exactly what, you know, Trent Williams' responsibilities were on a given play. So he was able to accurately, you know, sort of evaluate his performance on the play. But pro football focus didn't know that. And so if he may if if he turned loose an inside rusher that sacked the quarterback, pro football focus may say, well, that's Trent Williams' fault, when in fact his responsibility was to pick up the outside linebacker or something like that. You know, and and when it comes to the technical um, uh, playing of the position, you know, footwork, handwork, you know, we we don't know any of that. Most of us don't, unless you've really coached the sport or played the sport. I think the same goes actually for defensive backs. I think very often we as fans look at corners or safeties and pass coverage, and we automatically think when a receiver catches a pass in the general area of the guy that it was his fault. You know, and we really don't know what the coverage was. We don't know where he was so supposed to be. We don't know that they weren't in zone where he was turning the guy over to somebody else because he was in a certain coverage. He was in quarters and, you know, he's supposed to, that's exactly what he was supposed to do, even though we as fans go, oh my God, I mean, you kidding me? Quentin Dunbar just got beat like a drummer, Josh Norman. And sometimes it's not even their fault. Like the coach would say, what are you talking about? He did exactly what he was supposed to do, you know? Um, but I think that the uh, you know the evaluation of those positions in particular are always very difficult, and I think we as fans really miss more often on trade compensation for players in terms of what we think they're worth and what the ultimately you know ends up happening because there's so much to it right there's contract there's you know cap space there is the team's evaluation of the player. It's the team's evaluation of the player in their scheme. You know, all of that gets factored into it, and and usually um, it's something we don't have any clue about. I still, as it relates to Trent Williams, don't feel any differently than I did yesterday or the day before. I'm not giving him away. There's no way on hell I'm giving him away for anything less than a second rounder and really a top half of the second round, second rounder. This guy that writes for the Vikings, I'd take any one of the four deals he presented, and I think the Redskins would too. Um, but again, again it's, well, I thought yeah. I, I for one thing, I, I don't know the guy writing for the Vikings from Adam, but uh, he may not have talked. He may not be one of the, he may be one of these reporters who basically is uh, Joe from Bethesda on line three. Could be who doesn't talk to anybody in the organization, not one person. Uh, because you're right, the Redskins would jump at any of those trades uh, it, it offers if they were made. So I don't think they're they're realistic, and I don't think you know they they come from any kind of credible knowledge. Now there you go. This is what I've always been telling you about. What you have been describing is the difference between information and knowledge. You have pro football focus has information. What they don't have is knowledge. The knowledge of what a, a player's responsibility is on a particular play. That's the, that's the hard part for fans to live with. This is what I always argue about pitching decisions in a game. Right. That when, when a manager doesn't take a pitcher out or brings in a certain reliever, what you don't have is the knowledge of the conversations that that manager had with everybody that was going into the bullpen that night and what the, what they said they could tell, what they told the manager, they'd be capable of 
doing and what the manager said their roles are. That's knowledge. And it frustrates fans because they all want to be the manager or the <laughs> general manager. Yeah. And all they have is, is they have more information than they've ever had before, which makes them feel empowered to make declarations. But what you described is knowledge. Cooley has the knowledge. We don't have that. Um, yeah, no doubt. You know, but back to the trade conversation, knowledge and information, I think we would all, you know, say that Joe Theismann has more knowledge than any of us, right? Well, yes, in, yes. in a conversation with Joe, you know, last summer on radio, I remember us getting into Trent Williams and I'm like, I, Joe, I'd trade him. And he was not in favor of trading him at the time. And he's like, well, you're not going to get anything for him. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, what do you think you would get for him? And I said, I think you could get worst case a second and a third and maybe a first if a team gets desperate. And he's like, you're insane. There's no way they would get anywhere near that. You're talking about a mid-round pick at best. Now, I don't know if Joe was right or I was right, because I think if they did trade him and, and if they put him on the market back then, I think they would have gotten something closer to what I was suggesting. Joe ultimately might be right, you know, as we've waited and they didn't make the right move at the time. And now, you know, he's got one year left in his deal and he wants all this money and he's, you know, sat out an entire year and, the you know, all of that may be true. But, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, um, the trade value thing is really the thing that even the people with knowledge, you know, get wrong a lot. I just think it's – look at what DeAndre Hopkins went for. Imagine, you know, Aaron, before DeAndre Hopkins got traded to Arizona, what people thought DeAndre Hopkins was worth. By the way, people with knowledge and people without knowledge would have never suggested that you could get DeAndre Hopkins for, uh, for what uh, Arizona paid for him. I mean, it, now part of that is that Bill, Bill O'Brien might be a complete and utter idiot in terms of, of, of the trades that he's made, and he really has made some horrible trades. But Hopkins and a fourth-round pick to Arizona for David Johnson and a second-round pick. I mean, come on. Like, there's such a disconnect between what most people would think and what it ended up being. So anyway, I, I don't know um, that we need to go any you know much further on that. I, I just thought um, that if... if uh, if the Minnesota guy had a voice in this, we would take all those deals and run with them right now based on what we know. Yeah. Um, People would be stunned about the trade talks that do take place in all sports before, with general managers. How a guy like Mike Rizzo will get calls on trades for Steven Strasburg. Sure. Uh, and and, and they, they listen. They take them all. You know, I mean, it, you'd be amazed. People, uh, fans would be stunned at the, the, the amount of, of the trade conversations that casually take a place between general managers and all sports because it never hurts to ask. Exactly. Um, all right, so um, the last thing that I wanted to get to, unless you have um, other things, um, is something that I played on the show yesterday from Jason Locke and Fora. Um, and then I had Clinton Portis on the show, on the radio show today, and he actually repeated what he had told me on the podcast a few weeks back about Isaiah Simmons. First, I'm going to play for you, Tommy, and for everybody else again that didn't hear it yesterday. This was Jason Locke and Fora from CBSSports.com. We both like Jason. We both think he's a good reporter. He covered the skins for yeah. years at the Post. Um, and this is what he said about the Redskins and number two overall. 
I mean, I, I'd say there's a distinct possibility, and it will mostly be tied to the value in trade for that pick. And if they're able to auction it off for anything close to, say, what the Redskins gave up to move up and take RG3, uh, second overall, what, about seven or eight years ago. Um, that, that's what it's going to come down to is do they feel like there is enough opportunities to throw three, four, five darts at premium positions on that draft board the next couple of years that would allow them to hasten their their rebuild i know they don't really want to call it that but but that's what's going on there and and that's what ron rivera is looking at the big picture and saying you know what this kid might be a generational pass rusher but we got montez sweat and we're keeping kerrigan for another year and they've drafted so many high picks on on front seven players before i got here that what if we could trade down three, four, five spots, still get a, a blue chip player with generational type upside and have the ability to now walk away with three three additional ones or two additional ones and two additional twos and maybe a three. That's what it comes down to. If they stay at two, I think they take the player. But I continue to hear that they are increasingly open to trading out, whether that means somebody trading up for Tua, in all likelihood it would. Um and how far back would they go? If they do drop back a few spots, I believe strongly they would target Isaiah Simmons. And that's another player who I'm told is super high on their board. And they feel like he's such a, a rotational chess piece you could put all over the place. They're very intrigued by that possibility if they were to move down. All right. So the the big part of that is the last part, um, which is, you know, Jason Lockenfor is saying, I continue to hear that the Redskins are increasingly open to trading out, meaning trading down. If they do trade back a few spots, you know, I believe strongly they would target Isaiah Simmons. Um, so that was Jason Lockenfor yesterday. This was Clinton Portis this morning on my radio show. And Clinton said the same thing on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, but I asked him about what the Redskins should do at number two, this, and this is what he said. I would take Simmons at number two, and that's no disrespect to Chase Young. I just feel like Chase Young is a is a you know a get to the quarterback guy, or maybe he uh, gives you something to run game. That's a maybe. Uh, you know he can get to the quarterback, which is excellent. So you know he can get to the quarterback. But I think Isaiah Simmons can get to the quarterback. He can cover the tight end. He's disruptive. He doesn't mind laying that lumber. So I know what he like. I know he's a phys- like he's a, he's a specimen. Um, he's a beast when it comes to contact, to playing in space, and he can still get to the quarterback and be uh, disruptive. So I think you need a playmaker, um, which this is one of the, the few playmakers in the draft. That was Clinton um, with me uh, on the Team 980 earlier this morning. Clinton said, and he said the same thing on the podcast a few weeks back, he thinks Isaiah Simmons is the next Lawrence Taylor. And I said, okay, so if the Redskins are there at number two, you know, you wouldn't take Young. He said, no, I'd take Isaiah Simmons. He's the only person, by the way, I've heard say that Simmons is better than Young and he would take uh, Simmons at number two. The Jason Lock and Forrest stuff is um, – is really the, the the question, right? If you assume the Redskins aren't interested in in Tua Tungavailoa, all right, that they're not interested in a quarterback there, then and they are open to trading back, 
then the other the other player that they'd want to get if they trade back would be Isaiah Simmons, if you believe Jason Lock and Ford. The problem is trading back may basically eliminate the possibility of getting either Simmons or Chase Young. Because, Aaron, the first spot really they trade back to more likely than not would be Miami at five. Miami coming up to get to it, number two. And then you'd have the Lions and the Giants who would more likely than not Young and Simmons. It could be the corner, Jeff Okuda from Ohio State, which would leave the Redskins with either Simmons or Young at number five, more likely Simmons. But you're taking risk if those are the two players that you've sort of got neck and neck to trade back to get one of them. Uh, th- that would be my take. There's a lot of possibilities. I mean, hell, Detroit could say, we have to get Tua, and we're going to trade with the Redskins and move up one spot so no one else can trade into that spot. I also had somebody uh, basically uh, private message me yesterday, Matt, um, who essentially said, why do we just assume that people would be trading up for Tua? Like, if Chase Young is this great, you know, uh, all-time pass-rushing talent, why wouldn't we assume that the Giants or the Lions or the Dolphins or the Chargers might not, you know, might want to trade up for number two to take Chase Young? Which, you know, actually, I don't think we really have considered that a lot. You know, Chase Young is more likely than not going to be the highest-rated player on most people's boards. You know, I mean, that would be my guess right now. But um, I think it's the trade-back thing is too risky. Too risky. I think it is. Unless you can, unless you can guarantee you're going to get that guy that you want, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if you trade-back. And again, I mean, I just think, I, I understand Jason's uh, uh, point in that they've invested so much in their front, at least their front four, uh, as it is, that uh, and their front seven, if you include, yeah, I mean, totally. Uh, that uh, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to do the same thing with your number two pick if you can get more picks out of it. But uh, I'm I'm with you. If 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 you can't feel really strong about getting the other guy that you want, you got to stick with it and take Chase Young. I think right now we're less than a month away from the draft. I would actually be very surprised if the Redskins don't take Chase Young at number two overall. You know, I'm watching all the mocks. I mean, what else? You know, we 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 got a lot of time to to read a lot and and look at a lot. Like CBS Sports put out their updated mock this morning, Aaron, with this guy Tom Fornelli who put it out or his mock anyway. He's got the Redskins taking Tua at number two, and his hypothetical reads as follows: The Redskins quietly tried to trade. Haskins before making this pick, but found no takers. They take Tua anyway, so Haskins is on the block and is likely to go at some point during the draft, just like Rosen did last year. I do not see see them taking Tua. Um, Here's what Todd McShay had in his version whatever. Is this version 3.0? I don't even know at this point. He has the Redskins taking Young, and he writes... I expect Washington Washington to at least listen to some trade offers, but at the end of the day, it'd be really tough for the Redskins to pass on the most talented player in the draft class and one of the best pass-rushing prospects I've ever seen. Young posted a nation-leading 16.5 sacks and missed two games. Um, the two games were the Maryland game and the Rutgers game. Those two games, if he had played against Maryland and Rutgers, probably would have had another eight sacks in total. Yeah. Um, but... 
That's what I would do. Of course, they should be listening, and we're going to have plenty of time to talk about this as we get closer. They should listen to every offer. If they got an RG3 kind of offer from Miami, meaning Miami gave them number 5, number 18, number 26, you know, so they ended up with three first-rounders, and they got a second-rounder and a future first-rounder. If, if it ended up being something like that, well, yeah, you would you would consider that. You would, but... Not if Chase Young's so far and away the number one player on your board and you think he's going to be, you know, the next, you know, combination Nick Bosa, Von Miller, Khalil Mack for the next 10 years. You know, I mean, in an earlier mock draft, McShay said that Chase Young's better than Nick Bosa. If that's the case, I don't even know why you would even think about this. I agree. I agree. I mean, if he can change the outcome of a game for you, I mean, that's... what you don't have yeah you don't have that guy i mean that's the guy that's the that, that's the that's the defensive player that that you know can change your franchise the guy who can change the outcome of the game from all accounts this is a guy who can do that and like i said whatever ron wants ron gets <laughs> for now for now yes um all right what else what else do we have today i don't even know what else we're talking about today you got anything? I don't know. I got nothing else, Bob. This is part of your plan for the day, right? This is part of your routine for Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yes. Okay, yes. good. Now I'm gonna, Tuesday is a little bit different because now I'm going to go sit and write a column for the Washington Times. All right. You go do that. Uh, I'm going to – I don't know what I'm going to do the rest of the day. I gotta, Aaron, what are you doing the rest of the day? Actually, I do know what I'm going to do. I gotta pay bills. I've let mail stack up over the last two, two and a half weeks. By the way, you think if I pay bills late that anybody's gonna care during this? I think a lot of people are being forgiving, don't you? I think I think they should. I, I mean, I, I I think they are. I think they should. What's your policy on touching mail? You know what? That's exactly why I've just sort of let it pile up because I've been piling it up, and every time I bring, well, well that's a good idea. Every time that's I pick up the mail, I, I pile it up and I go, I go wash my hands. And then yes. if the virus can only sort of live on surfaces for up to three days, then I'm the old male should be good to go now. Yes, that, that, that's what I do. I let it sit for you know, an incubation period until it disappears. And then, and then I open it. I just want all of this to disappear. I, I'm, I'm, ready, I'm ready to get back to our real lives here. Um, thanks, by the way, to everybody. I know Tommy and Aaron feel the same way. Um, because I've had a lot of people reach out. I know they've reached out to you too, because they reach out to us simultaneously to say, this is so great that you guys are still doing the podcast. It's actually really great for us. And it's yes, really, it and it's really, um, great that you're listening to it. Um, and we appreciate it. The, the numbers have definitely gone up, you know, since this whole thing started. Um, and, uh, we're going to keep doing it for as long as we can do it. Uh, you know, right now we're, we're essential considered essential. Tommy doesn't have to leave his house, and basically I only have to go a couple of miles to get to where I'm going. Um, but thank you, and thanks to all of you that are you know, going through all of this, and especially those of you, if you're listening and you're in the healthcare you know, industry and you're a doctor or you're in a hospital, those are the people that are on the front lines of this thing, and it's really incredible the sacrifice and the risk that these people uh, are taking. Um, all right. Uh, let's, uh, let's get our masks and we'll reconvene on Thursday. Sounds good. All right. Uh, everybody have a great, uh, healthy, uh, safe day back tomorrow.